Good morning. We are grateful to have you at Stone Point Church this weekend. We are so glad that you've taken the time to be with us this morning, and we pray that it's a blessing to you. Last weekend, we talked uh, about the beginning of a new series called The Road Less Traveled. And The Road Less Traveled uh, is from the expression or the statement that Jesus made, and perhaps you've heard, that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Last week, what we discovered was, is that wealth is something that's neutral. When it comes to money, it's just an object. But what Jesus was trying to teach a young man in uh, the gospel of Luke was that money or wealth is not the problem for God, but it's the idea of misplaced worship. And some of us in this room, I would even perhaps say all of us in this room, we struggle with misplaced worship. The idea of misplaced worship is any time that we have an idol that takes the place that God should be in. For some of us, it could be relationships. For others of us, it could be our jobs. For some of us, it could be our hobbies. But for most of us in this room, the greatest competitor to our relationship with Jesus is our materials and our money. And so we just need to realize that God has a lot to say about the idea of wealth. And so we know that wealth is a challenge for all of us. And I know that you're going, I'm so glad that wealth is not a problem for me because I'm not that rich. But last week, we also learned that everyone here at Stone Point is among I'll go on a record and say the top 2% of the most wealthy people in the world. And so if indeed we are wealthy uh, by material standards, what's it look like for us to honor God with wealth? So one of the reasons that it's a challenge for us to honor God with our wealth is because we have different views of how God and money work together. And the reason we have these views is because there are really three different types of theology when it comes to, to money. One of the top uh, teachings in our day and time is the theology or the thought of prosperity. Prosperity theology is in a sense teaching that if you give to God, that he's going to give back. Matter of fact, maybe you've been watching uh, late at night or early in the day, uh, a TV evangelist, a preacher. And he says, friends, if you'll sow into my ministry with $100, I would love to bless you with $1,000 because of God's goodness. Uh, so you ever heard that? The idea is they're saying, hey, if you give to God, God is definitely going to give back. And the thought process is this is that God has to give you more when you give to him. And he'll do so because you have a like-minded faith or because uh, you're good and you, you keep works. And somehow there's a, a tie between your works and your wealth. And that's a real poor view of theology. Matter of fact, the reason that some people teach the idea of prosperity theology is because they take something out of context. So just real quickly, realize that if somebody takes a scripture out of context, it's always a con. 
Okay? So when they pluck one verse out of the multitude of scriptures surrounding that passage, then it can, it can con you into thinking that that's what God says about the issue. But here's what context is. Context is understanding who God's writing to, who the original audience was, and then what he's saying in the entire passage, not just one verse that you pluck out. And so the reason that prosperity theology is, is such a dangerous thing is because in order to have prosperity, you have to manipulate God to get more money. You use God in a sense and your faith and your relationship with him to acquire more wealth. And so that's a problem. It's a false view of theology. Now, the second false view of theology is this idea of poverty theology. Now, poverty theology simply teaches this. It teaches that if you're a poor folk or you're broke, then you're more like Jesus. So the idea is this, is that rich people are evil and they're wicked and poor people who live in monasteries apart from the world and that they are like the widow and her might are more holy. But what I want you to realize is that the view of poverty theology is also a misview of God, wealth, and possessions. So what I want you to realize is simply this, is that not only is prosperity thinking wrong, but poverty thinking is also misguided. Here's why. Throughout the scriptures, you see lots of wealthy people who are righteous. Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, he was a righteous man and he had lots of wealth. King David, a man after God's own heart, had plenty of wealth. His son Solomon, although he was uh, a little bit flaky sometimes, ultimately, I think, ended up with a strong belief in who God was, and he was the world's wealthiest man ever. If you remember Easter a couple of weeks ago, uh, we're celebrating that. But Jesus, when he died, they borrowed the tomb of a guy named Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph was a righteous man and also a wealthy one. You can also have poor people that are righteous. Maybe you remember the idea of the widow and her might. I just mentioned that a second ago. She was known to be poor, but she was also righteous. Why? Because she gave to God all that she had and Jesus commended her for it. At the same time, we have unrighteous people that are, uh, are wealthy and we have unrighteous people who are, are poor. See, matter of fact, the writer of Proverbs, they, they talk about what it looks like to be a sluggard and to be unwise and to be unrighteous when it comes to money. How we can oftentimes gamble things away or we can make poor decisions that we could be sluggards or that we could be slothful, that we don't work diligently with our hands. And so I don't think that the idea when it comes to poverty theology is near as much about rich and poor as much as it is righteous versus unrighteous. See, Jesus isn't concerned near as much about your wealth as he is your worship. He just wants to be in the right place. And so it brings me to this third thought process of theology and money. And I think it's the proper view of theology biblically. And I would just call it a peace-filled theology. So what I'm saying is, I believe that God desires for us to live at peace, that he desires for us to understand who God is. And the best way we understand who God is, is to realize what God has given us. 
God, according to the scriptures, has invested things with us and we are managers of those things. That means that when we were born, we brought nothing into the world. And when we die, the scriptures tell us, and we'll read in a few moments that we take nothing out of the world. So the idea is simply this. Everything that we own is on loan from God. Everything we own is currently on loan from God. He has given it to us. He desires for us to be good managers of the things he's entrusted to our care. He wants us to enjoy those things. He wants us to watch over those things, but he doesn't want us to get greedy. Now, the reason that we get uh, greedy is because we always crave more. And the more we crave, the more we desire. However, the problem with this whole idea of a peace-filled theology when it comes to money is we never teach about how to, how to have peace. And the reason why is because we never talk about greed. And the reason we don't ever talk about greed in the church is because we don't think we are greedy. Like there's no one here as we listen on today that goes, you know what? I'm really selfish. I'm really greedy. And I keep everything to myself. Now, I would say even the most greedy people that are here with us this weekend at Stone Point Church have justifications as why you're not greedy. Because you've given to someone recently, you fixed somebody's flat tire, you gave to somebody somewhere, whatever it is. We don't think we're greedy. But the problem is, is that we're Americans. And with Americans, we rarely live with peace in our life when it comes to this idea of money, wealth, and materials. And here's why. Because we always crave for more. Marketing exists in our life to remind us of how much we're miserable because we don't have that one thing. And so because of that, we fall into the cycle that we must have more. But here's my deal. I want you to realize that Jesus teaches us in his word to be content. Matter of fact, Paul even writes to his buddy Timothy and he speaks about this idea of contentment. And here's what contentment is. Contentment is being at peace with what God has entrusted to your care. Matter of fact, as we begin to just look at the scriptures this morning, I want you to turn with me uh, to 1 Timothy chapter uh, 6. Um, if you're in your Bibles and you're scrolling through, the New Testament uh, is where you have the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And then also you have all these letters that are written uh, that are about the early church. First Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul to a friend and a pastor uh, in Ephesus called Timothy. And if you're looking for it, you're scrolling through your Bible right now. First Timothy is before second Timothy. So check that out. Now, here's what I want you to realize real quickly. Contentment is when we begin to be at peace with what God has given us. First Timothy 6, Paul writes to, to Timothy, uh, the pastor of this early church, and he goes, hey, you need to teach your people there in Ephesus what it looks like to be content. Now, Ephesus was a city of great wealth, notoriety, and prestige. They had plenty of people that had material, wealth, and money. And Paul says, if you're going to have wealthy people, 
and they're going to be among the most rich and elite people in the world, then teach them how to live with that wealth. And that's what we are. We are among the top wealthy people in the world. And so let's learn how to manage our wealth in a way that's peace-filled and that honors God. Verse 6 of 1 Timothy 6 says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. See, here in America, we, we are concerned with great gain. We desire to have more. Matter of fact, we often look at our portfolios, our 401k plans, and we're always hoping that there are gains. We love profit margins. We despise depreciation. We love to see great gains. But what's ironic is that Paul writes to Timothy and he says, what is a great gain is when you live at peace, that you're content when you can rest in what you have. Why? Verse seven says, because we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. We came into the world with nothing. We're leaving with nothing. So be content to enjoy what you have. One of the marks of a mature believer is that you are content with your lot in life. You're content with what you have. Verse eight goes on and says, but if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. Now, I don't know about you, but I struggle sometimes to be content. And if I think contentment means that I'm satisfied with the amount of clothes I have and the food that I eat, and that should be enough to bring contentment, then I'm probably, I'm not going to lie, I struggle with greed. I struggle with a desire to have more. There's always one more thing. Verse 9 says, but those who desire to be rich... If you were to look at this in the Greek, the, those that desire to always have more, they do what? They fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless, senseless and harmless desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Now think about this for just a second. It's people who desire to be rich. Those are the ones who fall into temptation. Those are the ones who plunge themselves into senseless, harmful desires that bring about ruin and destruction. Now think about this for just a second. When you were dreaming about your house and about your spouse, you never ever thought about destruction, did you? You never said to each other, hey, let's get the nicest house in the best neighborhood and let's pay the most money so that we're strapped forever. You never said that, did you? Matter of fact, you never said, hey, why don't we go get two brand new vehicles because we deserve them and we can afford them every month. And here's the deal. If we spend money there, we have no money anywhere else. Like you never said that. And the reason why is that the desire to be wealthy and to be rich that plunges us into destruction. And no one in here, no one said today, today to ourselves or for that matter, when we were getting married, that we would like to live a life of destruction. We didn't say that. And the reason why is, is because we desire to have peace. The problem is, is that we live in a culture that doesn't teach peace. We teach craving for more. And think about this. Peace means that there is rest, that there's serenity, that there's a calming sense of being okay with your lot in life. But we teach that you should crave more. And when you crave more, it means that there's a temptation to get tired, 
to be tempted, to run a race, to be chaotic, to always be acquiring more debt. And as you acquire this, it creates tension over here. And so many of us right now are breeding discontentment in our life because we crave more and more and more. And the reason we crave more and more and more is because we believe that if we just get that one more thing, then we'll have peace. But Paul says, contentment is a great gain. What would it look like if we were content with what we had? Verse 10 then goes on and says, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now look at that real quickly. It didn't say for money is the root of all evil. Okay. Look at it. What did it say? Say it with me, church. Okay. The love. Okay. No, say it with me. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. See, Jesus doesn't have a problem with money and materials. He has a problem with misplaced worship. And let me explain why it's misplaced. See, God commands us throughout the word and the scriptures to love God, to love people, and to use money as a resource. The problem is, is that we have flipped it on its head. And here's why. Because we believe that we should use God, use people to get more money. Okay, so catch it real quickly. We are called to love God, to love people, and to use money as a resource. Instead, we use God, use people to get more money. Isn't that the problem? Yes, we desire, but we can't have. We crave, and it spins us into a vicious cycle of ruin and destruction. And so church, if you're here this weekend and you, you, in your mind and in your heart, you go, well, that's me. I know that that's me. There's no peace. There is no joy right now in my life because the thief of joy has ripped me off. The thief has come and he's convinced me to be normal. And here's what normal in our society is. It's more debt it's more workloads, it's more jobs, it's more chaos. But here's what weird is. And my prayer is that we have become weird. Weird is a peace-filled theology, trusting in God for our riches. Trusting in Jesus, the one who wants to richly bless us. And so as we think about this, how do we have a peace-filled life? I wanna just help you train the camel. See, we live in a society where right now we're, we're allowing the camel to train us. Society says jump, we say how high. Our friends have something we desire too. What would it look like if we began to train the camel? And here's four practical steps, and I want to give them to you rather quickly. The first one is, if you're going to train the camel, you have to quit getting put or even trapped with the comparison trap. Quit getting caught in comparison. Here's what I want you to hear. When, when comparison begins, contentment ends. When comparison begins, contentment ends. See, our comparison to others always is breeding more discontentment. We're always looking for more. But what would it look like if we could learn to appreciate what others have without having to attain their same items? 
See, see God gives us uh, something, a counsel uh, in his word as he gave to the people of Israel in the 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. And it's something we should pay attention to. It merely says this, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. See, we allow ourselves to be ripped off when thankfulness leaves our home. See, without thankfulness, there's a thief of joy. And here's what I mean by that. Oftentimes, I'll go to a friend's house and I will look at their rolling pasture and their hills. I will drool over their nice pool or their big shop. I look at their brand new vehicles as I ride in them and I go, wow, what would it look like if I had this vehicle? But the problem with that is this, is that if I bought everything my friends have, then guess what? I would have no friends. And the reason why, because I wouldn't have any time for them because I would always be wanting to acquire more. I would need more to supply all that I'm doing. And here's the challenge with that. What would it look like if you and I quit comparison comparing ourselves to everything else around us? What would it look like if we were able to fix our eyes upon the author and effector of our faith, the Lord Jesus? What would it look like if we moved from being greedy to being grateful? What would it look like if our hearts were in a position to just be okay with who God is and what he's given us? What would it be like if we were content to not get caught up in the comparison trap. The second thing is to be content to enjoy what God has given you. Ecclesiastes 5 verses 18 through 20 says, Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. So the idea is this is what would it look like if we just enjoyed the things that God has given us? What if we were okay to just celebrate all that God has put in our care? Instead of saying, God, I wish you would give me more. God, I wish I could acquire what my neighbor has. I wish I had his tractor. I wish I had his truck. I wish I had his wife. What would it look like if you said, God, I just want to be content with what I have? Verse 19 says, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. So catch this. What is the gift of God? The gift of God is to accept his lot and rejoice in his his toil. What are we rejoicing? We're rejoicing that God is the giver of good things. Matter of fact, our thought process is that rich people are evil, right? They have too much. They're too good looking. They got too many things. No, no, no. It's not that rich people are evil. It's that people who love riches become evil. God is concerned about the unrighteous. Oftentimes it is money and possessions that lead us to destruction and to ruin and to unrighteousness. And God is concerned about that. But here's what you need to pay attention to. 
God is the giver of good things. And some of the things he gives in verse 19 says he gives wealth, possessions, and the power to enjoy them. Whoa, 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 what? Okay, lean in. God is the one who gives wealth and the ability to enjoy wealth. And so what would it look like if we were okay to enjoy the things that God has given us? The only way you do that is to realize that God doesn't have a problem with wealth. He has a problem with misplaced worship. And so contentment is something that we choose to enjoy. Contentment is something you choose. If you're waiting for the world to give you contentment, you're going to be waiting a long time. If you're waiting for peace to happen to you, you need to realize that that's not the way that God established it. He desires for peace to happen through you. Matter of fact, you could, you've heard it said, and I had a friend tell me last week that we're not created to be a reservoir, but to be a river. God is working to us and through us. So here's what I want you to hear, friends, and this is really important. At Christmas, you sing a song called Joy to the World. Notice the title is not Joy from the World. We enjoy the things that God's given us because we're content, and then we pass that contentment on to the world. People know that we are his disciples because of the way we live our lives. So what would it look like if we enjoyed all that God has given us? We were content with our lot in life. We celebrated the things around us. We didn't get caught in the comparison trap, and we just enjoyed and were totally satisfied with a peace centered theology of money, wealth, and possessions. We do that when we're, what, when we're grateful. See, peace is the fruit of gratitude. When you're grateful, you have peace. And all God wants us to do is stop and thank him for what he's given us. Psalm 100 verse four simply says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. When's the last time that you brought joy to the world instead of looking for your peace and your hope and your joy from the world? All peace comes from God. And so may you rest in his peace. And one of the ways that you do it is not just by enjoying who God is and what he's given you, but it's also to remember that our life is not about acquiring more. Paul said that you bring nothing into the world and you'll take nothing out of the world. Jesus says something similar in Matthew chapter six, verses 19 through 21. He encourages us to not lay up ourselves for ourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, here's what I want you to, to see. Jesus goes, don't build up for yourself things here on earth because earth is not about riches as much as it is about relationships. The life that we have with God on this planet is not near as much about possessions as it is about people. Remember, so God's created us to love him and to love people. And one of the ways that we have richness in this life is because we have quality relationships. 
It's investments in people. It's investments in relationships that are fulfilling. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 12, verse 15. He says, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So here's the deal. Life is not about stuff. It's not about more cravings. Why? Because Solomon says chasing after things of this world is like chasing after the wind. You'll never catch it. It'll never be enough. And so that's why I just want you to remember, life is not about acquisitions. Life is about slowing down and enjoying the goodness of God without having to acquire more stuff. As one writer once said, life is not intended to be gulped, but it's intended to be sipped. It's intended to be enjoyed for the purposes of God. And we do that best when we build not wealth, but relationships. Not investments in people, but in, or investments in, in possessions, but in people. That's the key. And then the last one is that investments do matter. I'm an investment guy. I think investments matter, but I want you to hear this. Eternal investments always surpass worldly ones. So what is Jesus wanting to teach us? He is teaching us in Matthew chapter six, after he says, hey, don't store up for yourselves. Don't build for yourselves treasure on earth. He goes, this is what it looks like to be content, understanding that God provides your needs. And then in verse 33, he says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. The greatest investments that you ever make are not in your portfolio. The greatest investments you're ever gonna make is not in your 401k. The greatest riches that you'll ever have are from the rewards of God because you invested in eternal purposes. And so church, what would it look like for us to enjoy the fruits of the harvest of God, to be content with what we have, to stop comparing ourselves, to enjoy who God is, to quit worrying about the acquisitions of more stuff, but to invest in more people for eternal reasons. That's what the church is about. And so church, may we be about that. And may we realize that even as we're doing these things, that God is not opposed to wealth. Matter of fact, just remember this. Jesus, Jesus did not say to the rich young ruler that his money was a problem. The problem was not his wealth, but it was with his worship. It's about putting God first. And so would you just pray with me? Uh, I introduced this prayer to you last week. I want to close with it. And I'm asking that you would say this with me on both campuses. And so here it is. Father, help me not to put my hope in riches, but in Jesus who loves me richly. Okay. Let's say it with me one more time. Okay. Say it. Okay. I'm listening. Father. No, come on. Let's say it. Father, help me to put my hope in, in what? Not in riches, but in Jesus who loves me richly. Let's pray together. Jesus, we love you. And we thank you for this day, this weekend in which we can celebrate together as your people, 
all that you're doing through the life and the embodiment of the church. We thank you that you call us your people. We thank you that because we are your people, that you desire for us to live lives of peace, to be peace-filled when it comes to the, the area of money, that we should learn to be content. And content means that we're grateful. We're, we're grateful for who you are and for what you've done. We're grateful for your son. We're grateful that you have made us stewards and managers of your resources. God, would you just remind us that all the things that we have are on loan from you, that there's actually nothing that we own, that we came into the world with nothing and we'll leave with nothing. And so God, would you help us to remember that our life on this earth is not near as much about possessions as it is about people. So help us, God, to build into things that matter and help us to be satisfied and to enjoy the things that you've given us. Forgive us, God, for areas that we have misplaced worship, where we have put money and prestige and power in the place of the one who brings peace, and that's your son, Jesus. So God, would you help us as we leave this place to live, to serve, and to be the church? In Jesus' name we pray, and everyone said, amen.